Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania, by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. As always, lots of stuff to get into in the world of baseball sports and unifying America. Just a reminder, you want to become part of the show, you can at me at John underscore Pielli on Twitter. You can email me if you want, jrpli at gmail.com. You can give the show a call if you'd like, 732-364-3598. Handful of topics we're going to get into today. Um, we're thinking about football playoff weekend, wildcard weekend. And I want to divulge into the teams that are playing a little bit more, not break down the matchups. If we got a little time towards the end of the show today, what we'll do is We'll go back to Pielli's picks. I got the uh, the bumper ready to play. We can make the our predictions over what we think will happen this weekend. Obviously, you know, I want to know what you think. You know, Buffalo Bills, Houston Texans, Titans, Patriots, Vikings, Saints, Seahawks, Eagles. Um, storied franchises in a bunch of different ways. So we're going to get into that in a little bit. But first thing I want to start talking about, if you head over to JohnPielli.com, we spoke months ago about the lack of black managers in baseball, but not only the lack of black managers in baseball now, but the amount of teams that have still, since the inception of the first black manager, which was Larry Doby, in, I'm sorry, which was, I'm sorry, Frank Robinson in 1975, there are still 10 teams that have never had an African-American manager. And 11th team, the San Diego Padres, had Dave Roberts as an interim manager for one game between Bud Black and Pat Murphy, who ended up finishing up the rest of the season. So technically, the Padres shouldn't count as ever having a black manager. But in this situation, we actually are, you know, according to my website, I actually count them. So I wanted to talk about Latin American managers in baseball because I think the worst thing you could do if you want to, I don't know, piss people off for no reason is to say that somebody that's darker skin should all be considered in the same group. And, you know, it sounds ignorant for somebody to say, but also anybody that has that said to them says, well, you know, these are the differences. I'm this, this, and this, and that person is that, that, and that, and you could all point to positive qualities. It doesn't have to be a, a disparaging to one or the other, but there clearly is a difference in, you know, heritage and, you know, nationality and upbringing. And, you know, even from a language standpoint, a lot of Latin American uh, citizens, you know, speak Spanish pretty fluently. A lot of other Americans don't at all. So there, there is a difference. So, yeah, uh, and I thought there would be a point where I should quantify. We talk about black managers or darker skin managers in baseball. You could talk about the likes of Felipe Alou and Tony Perez. Yes, their skin may be darker, but they are, you know, Latin American. So they're they're born outside of the country. They should be in a different type of classification. So to Stop rambling for a second. We'll get right into it. Latin American managers in baseball history. A lot of people may not know that the first Latin American manager in baseball history was actually well before the first black manager in baseball history. And it has happened actually in 1938. 
And it's funny, I'm actually going to JohnPLA.com as a reference here because a couple of different things we're going to talk about, we're going to be able to refer to the front page of the site. So if you get a chance, you go to JohnPLA.com. I actually have a list of the first African-American manager in baseball history for every team. And the first one was in 1938 when Frankie Frisch was let go as the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, and he was replaced with Mike Gonzalez. And Mike Gonzalez was from Cuba. And at the time, it didn't seem like that big of a deal, but when we think of Latin American managers in Major League Baseball history, you're going to find out that similar to the teams that have hired black managers in baseball history, there are still a lot of teams that have never hired one. So Mike Gonzalez becomes the first Latin American manager in Major League Baseball history in 1938 when he's hired to finish out the season and replace in place of Frankie Frisch. We don't have another Latin American manager until 1969 when the expansion San Diego Padres come into Major League Baseball, one of four teams that come in that year. You got the Montreal Expos, the Seattle Pilots, who eventually become the Milwaukee Brewers, and, of course, the Kansas City Royals. So the Padres hire Preston Gomez as their first manager in 1969, becomes the second Latin American manager in Major League Baseball history. Now Preston Gomez is also the third Latin American manager in Major League Baseball history, pretty similar to when we're talking about the black managers, somebody like a Frank Robinson, even a Hal McRae, and uh, you know, a couple others are the examples of the first black manager of different teams. Same thing you could say about the Latin American managers. Preston Gomez, hired by the Houston Astros for the 1974 season, becomes the third Latin American manager in Major League Baseball history. Preston Gomez is also the fourth Latin American manager in Major League Baseball history, hired by the Chicago Cubs in 1980. After that, the Seattle Mariners, as an interim manager, hire Marty Martinez in 1986. The California Angels used Cookie Rojas as an interim manager in 1988. The Montreal Expos hired Felipe Alou as their manager in 1992. Tony Perez, Hall of Famer, Cincinnati Reds legend, becomes an interim manager in 1993 for the Cincinnati Ball Club. Cookie Rojas, who doesn't have a long career as a major league manager, but is mentioned on this list twice as the first Latin American manager of the Miami Marlins, at the time the Florida Marlins, in 1996. Detroit Tigers in 2002 hire Luis Pujols as an interim manager, first Latin American manager in the history of that franchise. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays hired Carlos Tosca, as an interim manager in 2002. Felipe Alou becomes the San Francisco Giants' first Latin American manager in 2003. Tony Pena becomes the Kansas City Royals' first Latin American manager in 2003. Ozzie Guillen becomes the first Latin American manager in the history of the Chicago White Sox in 2004. Al Pedrique as an interim manager, takes over for Bob Melvin with the Arizona Diamondbacks in 2004. Manny Acta becomes the first Latin American manager in the history of the Cleveland Indians in 2010. Freddie Gonzalez, the same with the Atlanta Braves in 2011. Alex Cora 
becomes a, the first Latin American manager in a history, in a long history of the Boston Red Sox in 2018 and wins a World Series in his first year as the manager of the Boston Red Sox. Carlos Beltran, who has not managed a game yet, is hired as the manager of the New York Mets for the 2020 season. And once he is behind the bench, he will become the first Latin American manager in the history of the New York Mets franchise. So that leaves a total of 11 teams who have never hired a Latin American manager in the history of Major League Baseball. And some of them go back a long time. The Pittsburgh Pirates started in 1882, have never hired a Latin American manager. The Philadelphia Phillies started in 1883, have never hired a Latin American manager. The Los Angeles Dodgers, who obviously started in Brooklyn, go back to the year of 1884, have never hired a Latin American manager. The Minnesota Twins, the Oakland Athletics, and the Baltimore Orioles, who of course were the St. Louis Browns. We know the Twins used to be the Washington Senators. Going back to the year of 19-1, have never hired a Latin American manager. Now, the New York Yankees, who really should technically be considered the Baltimore Orioles of 19-1 and 19-2, but you know the team ends up being basically contracted, abolished from the league. After 1992, a new New York team started in 19-3, so technically the New York Yankees slash Highlanders started in 1903 and have never hired a Latin American manager. The Texas Rangers, who started in 1961, the Milwaukee Brewers, who started in 1969, the Colorado Rockies, who started in 1993, and the Tampa Bay Rays, who started in 1998, have all never hired an Afri- I'm sorry, a Latin American manager. Going back to the history of black managers in Major League Baseball, I've mentioned this on a show before, the Atlanta Braves, who started in 1876, the St. Louis Cardinals, who started in 1882, the Philadelphia Phillies, who started in 1883, the Boston Red Sox, Detroit Tigers, Oakland Athletics, Minnesota Twins, who all started in 1901, the Yankees, who started in 1903, the Los Angeles slash California Angels, who started in 1961, the Florida slash Miami Marlins, who started in 1993, and the Arizona Diamondbacks, who started in 1998, have never in their history hired an African-American manager. Now, putting these two together, there's four teams that have never hired either an African-American manager or a Latin American manager in the history of their franchise. And I do think this should be spoken about a little bit more. There's the Philadelphia Phillies who go back to the year of 1883, have never hired neither a black nor a Latin American manager. You got the Oakland Athletics slash Kansas City Athletics slash Philadelphia Athletics. And I know the first 50 years of the Philadelphia Athletics were all managed by one man, Connie Mack, something you're never going to see in the history of baseball again. So I get it. I understand it. We're still talking about a long history after that where they've never hired neither a black nor Latin American manager. Uh, there's the Minnesota Twins, who go back to the days of the Washington Senators, starting in 1901. They've never done it either. And then the final team, which, yeah, I seem to have lost my chain of thought. So there's the Phillies, the Athletics, the Twins and the Yankees have never hired 
a Latin or black American, black American, I was African American manager. Sorry for the stumble there, but you know, it is a problem. You're talking about four teams in baseball history that have not done either. And I don't know, like you think of football, how it works. Is the Rooney rule really productive? Yes, there's token interviews and more token interviews than actual interviews. And I'm sure because of that, there are some more African-American head coaches getting hired in the sport of pro football. Mike Tomlin probably earned a job as the coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers due to a token interview because of the Rooney rule. You can talk about guys like Steve Wilkes and other coaches throughout the National Football League may have gotten that opportunity because of the Rooney rule. But outside of that, it's not really improved things. There's still very few black coaches in the National Football League and even less Latin American coaches in the National Football League. Now, you figure baseball is more of a Latin American sport. The amount of Latin American players in Major League Baseball as opposed to pro football is a lot higher. Pretty similarly to the way you could say that the percentage of black players in the National Football League is higher than that of black players in Major League Baseball. Now, that could be a different topic. You know, you want to talk about reasons that there are so few African-American players in Major League Baseball. I think that's something that should be brought up because you could talk about the history of the Negro Leagues back when there was segregation. And I still think it's just baffling to me how people would not be accepted as part of a group or allowed to play or gain a sort of employment because of the color of their skin. But um, I digress from that because it's just disgusting and evil and something that it's just not worth talking about at the moment because I think we've grown as a society to a point where we're better than that now. Now, does that mean we forget? No, there's no reason to forget what happened and the ignorance that exists from years upon years, but we see that same ignorance in the world of sports today. And when it comes to coaches, And in Major League Baseball, when it comes to managers, even though the position has been diminished as much as it has been, we're still talking about four teams that have never hired neither a black nor Latin American manager ever in their history. And they all go back a long time. The Phillies since 1883. The Athletics since 1901. The Twins slash Senators since 1901. The New York Yankees slash Highlanders since 1903. What do these teams have to say about that? Has that question ever been posed to one of those teams? And you talk about 10 teams that have never hired a black manager in Major League Baseball history. Braves, Cardinals, Phillies, Red Sox, Tigers, Athletics, Twins, Yankees, Angels, Marlins, Diamondbacks, which I think that's 11. And there's also 11 teams that have never hired a Latin American manager. Pirates, Phillies, Dodgers, Twins, Athletics, Orioles, Yankees, Rangers, Brewers, Rockies, Rays. What gives? This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication reproduction of these to the pictures, descriptions, and accounts 
of this show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPLA.com and JohnPLA LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charge and admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So this part of the program, we get to talk about something a little more lively, a little more positive, and that's the NFL playoffs starting this weekend. And rather than preview each one of the four games, and like I said, if I have a little time, I'll do my picks at the end, you know, coinciding with bets placed on FanDuel from my mobile phone in the state of New Jersey. But you got the Houston Texans who come in as the least experienced, not only playoff team, but least experienced team in the National Football League playoffs, a team that was granted a franchise after the Houston Oilers moved to Tennessee to become the Titans. And they got a home playoff game after winning the AFC South playing the Buffalo Bills, who won the wild card and are in a good position, but have to go on the road to face Houston. The history of the Houston and Texans franchise, they have not been to a Super Bowl. They are three and five in their career or in their history in the playoffs. And now we move on to Buffalo, who we know made it to the four straight Super Bowls from 90 to 93, losing all four. Outside of that, they've won two AFL championships. And here's the part of pro football that I don't think gets discussed enough. The history that exists before the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl era, which we know, Super Bowl one, 1967 slash 1968, first Super Bowl, the AFL-NFL championship game. We know what it's become now, but it's almost like we forget that football history exists before the Super Bowl era. And the Buffalo Bills, who we may say are 0-4 in the history of the Super Bowl, won two AFL championships in 1964 and 1965. The Tennessee Titans, who of course were the Houston Oilers for a long time since the beginning of the AFL, are 0-1 in the history of the Super Bowl era. But similar to the Buffalo Bills, our two-time AFL champions, one in the league's in, excuse me, inaugural season of 1960 and again in 1961 with George Bland as their quarterback. In their playoff history, they are 15-20, and 20, and obviously they are heading on the road to face the New England Patriots, who obviously have been to more Super Bowls now than any team in the history of the league, are six and five in Super Bowls, thirty-seven and twenty in the playoffs, and then you look at head coach Bill Belichick, quarterback Tom Brady. They've been together obviously for twenty years, and with the two of them, in the last twenty years, the New England Patriots are six and three in the Super Bowl, which means they've been to nine Super Bowls in the last twenty years. Their playoff record with the two of them is 30 and 10. So you take that away before Belichick, before Brady. The New England Patriots were 0 and 2 in the Super Bowl and were 7 and 10 in the playoffs. Moving over to the NFC, the Philadelphia Eagles, who, of course, a couple years ago won their first Super Bowl, 1 and 2 in the Super Bowl era, but are also three time NFL champions in 1948, 1949, and 1960. Their playoff record in franchise history is. 23 and 22. They are hosting the Seattle Seahawks, who are one and two 
in Super Bowl history. They're 16-16 and 16 in the playoffs. The Minnesota Vikings, who are heading to New Orleans to play the Saints, are 0-4 in the Super Bowl era. Were known as the Buffalo Bills before the Buffalo Bills, losing those Super Bowls in the seventies. Fran Tarkenton, you know the, you know, uh, the the fearsome foursome, legendary team just never won a big game. Twenty and twenty nine in playoff history. Then you got the New Orleans Saints, who out of anybody that is playing this weekend are the only team to have played in the Super Bowl and never lost are 1 and 0 in Super Bowl history and are 9 and 7 in the playoffs. So we're moving on, we're going to talk a little bit about the college football head coaches. And I like to and like to direct people to jobpl.com which we're going to do a little bit better of a job of getting people to look there, but it's actually on the front page. Uh, if you want to follow me, top 10 college football coaches of all time. And one of the things that I always want to incorporate into this show is to not just talk about the now. If we're going to talk about college football history, you know, it might be nice to mention a Joe Paterno or a Woody Hayes or Bear Bryant. But it also is just as imperative to go back to the inception of college football. We talk about this as it applies to the top 10 or or the top 100 offensive position players to ever play in Major League Baseball. And in order to quantify that, you really do have to go back to before the dead ball era. You have to go back to the 19th century as baseball existed. And you got to put a lot of different factors in and say, hey, what is success in that time mean as opposed to success now? It might be easy to diminish that because we've seen the stuff before our eyes firsthand and all we know about what happened before is maybe what we read out of a book. Very little footage or audio exists from the 19th century. So you have to really look deep into the stats and understand what they meant for the time that baseball was played. And are we talking about players that dominated the sport and were hands down better than any other player that played at that time, because if they were, then they certainly should match up with players that are playing right now. Certainly should match up with players that played in the glory days of the 1950s and 60s, and even the 80s and 90s, and obviously the 2000s, we're talking about players that were using performance-enhancing drugs. So I digress as we get back. We're talking about college football head coaches, and we're going to start from a countdown, starting with number 10. And number 10 is Tom Osborne. Tom Osborne spent 25 years as the head coach of Nebraska. Won a – how many championships did he win? It looks like one, two, three, four, One, two, sorry, two-time national champion with Nebraska in 94 and 95, but um, a dominant head coach known for transcending the sport. In fact, if you look at the program of Nebraska and the Nebraska Cornhuskers as they exist, I think of Lou Pinella in a weird way. And you say, why would you think of Lou Pinella when you're talking about Tom Osborne? Because if you look at the history of Nebraska 
college football before Tom Osborne, it wasn't a major program. It wasn't a successful program. If you look at the history of Nebraska Cornhusker college football after Tom Osborne retired, after the 1997 season, which, by the way, they finished 13-0, and zero, they haven't been a very good college football team. Luke Pinella managed the Seattle Mariners. Before he managed the Seattle Mariners, they never made the playoffs. He led them to a couple playoff appearances. And ever since Lou Pinella left, the Seattle Mariners have not made the playoffs. So Tom Osborne's impact on a Nebraska Cornhusker franchise and the college football program is up there with the impact of any other coach in any for any team. So that's why I go Tom Osborne, number 10. Number nine is Woody Hayes. And Woody Hayes, 761 winning percentage in 28 years, of course, at Ohio State. And won two-time two national championship head coach from 1951 to 1978. Was there a long time. And you think of the great coaches that ever existed in the history of college football, and you'd be silly to not mention Woody Hayes. So the next one is Eddie Robinson, Grambling State. And we talk about Grambling State not being a Division I program. And I think, once again, it's an example to try to diminish what a great black coach has done. And we talk about, like I said, the lack of black head coaches in the National Football League, the lack of black major league managers. Going back to when Frank Robinson became the first African-American manager, you figure over the course of 20, 30 years, teams would follow suit. They didn't do that in baseball. So these same people are going to try to diminish the accomplishments of Eddie Robinson. And Eddie Robinson was a fantastic head coach. He took a program that had no notoriety. Nobody knew anything about it. Turned him into a great program, won over 400 games there. Was 9-6 and six in bowls. Coached there for, geez, 30, what is it, 36, 36, 37 years? It's a long friggin' time. And his impact on African-American players, the amount of players that went through that school and ended up playing in the NFL and have an opportunity to play pro football, it's impossible to put a list of the top 10 college football coaches of all time and not mention Eddie Robinson. So we move up to number six, and that's going to be, I'm sorry, number seven, it's going to be Fielding Yost. And you may say, who the heck is Fielding Yost? Well, he's a guy that was a head coach for 25 years and had an 833 winning percentage. Coached from 1901 to 1926, the University of Michigan. In fact, his first four seasons, he was the head coach at Michigan. The team never lost a game. They were 33, I'm sorry, 43-0-1. And you look at the guy who really his worst season he ever had as a coach was one year in 1914 when they were six and three. So an outstanding head coach, one that probably doesn't get a lot of credit, but he's in here probably more because of his winning percentage than anything. And I'd be remiss if I'm putting this list together and I don't mention Fielding Yost, the head coach at Michigan. Number six, 
we're going to go contemporary. And I'm throwing Urban Meyer's name in the mix. A guy who has been a head coach for 17 years and has an 854 winning percentage from his days at Bowling Green to Utah to Florida to Ohio State. And, you know, from a health standpoint, he's had to step down a couple times. That may be the reason that he never coaches another game in college football. But he's always going to be a candidate for any major school opening. And certainly he's going to be under consideration for National Football League jobs. Do I think he's ever going to coach again? I believe that coach is coach. And I believe that if Urban Meyer gets a clean bill of health, and feels like he can do it, go through the rigors of an entire season, I think he's going to have another run left in him. But the run that he has had to this point is outstanding. It really is. Won a national championship, actually two at Florida. Won another one with Ohio State. That 854 winning percentage really does put him top 10 all time. Number Number five is Joe Paterno. And I don't want to hear anything about the Sandusky scandal. That's a different topic for a different time. One that we've brought up on this show many, many times. So it's not that we are sensitive to talking about it. But Joe Paterno, the head coach, started long before Jerry Sandusky became an assistant. So from 1966 to, of course, the untimely demise and firing in 2011, which unfortunately had as much of an impact on him and led to his death less than six months later. We're talking about a guy that was Penn State. There was no Penn State before him. There's no mention of Penn State after him without talking about Joe Paterno. And Joe Paterno, from a national championship standpoint, led his team to two championships, a ton of bowl wins. You're talking about a guy with... 409 wins, 136 losses, a 749 winning percentage, and 24-12-1 in bowl games. How about that? And actually, the thing that stands out is most, most impressive is actually one bowl game ended in a tie. And that was the 1967 Gator Bowl, where Penn State ended up tying... Hold on, we're getting here. And, of course, I can't dig it up right away. Florida State. Yeah, so Penn State, Florida State actually tied in the Gator Bowl in 1967. But Joe Paterno, no question, one of the greatest college football head coaches in the history of the sport. So after that, we go to the likes of Nick Saban. Nick Saban, five national championships, is an outstanding head football coach of the University of Alabama. Of course, started out in LSU. And it's hard to not mention Nick Saban because this is a guy who has done nothing but win as a college football head coach. One, two, three, four five-time national champion with the University of Alabama. How many other college football coaches could claim to win as many national championships? So it's a little silly to disregard Nick Saban. So the next guy you got to mention is another older guy, 
another coach that goes back. Actually, he goes back to the 19th century, and we're talking about Walter Camp. And you can talk about Walter Camp's career. I know he coached more games, but at least on the uh, 1A level, the Division One level, was a head football coach at Yale from 1888 to 1892. Did nothing but win a 68-2 record in those five seasons. Was a four-time national champion. And we talk about the Yale teams as far as being the predecessors to college football as we see it today. These Those old Ivy League games with Princeton and Yale and Harvard and Pennsylvania. That was the beginning of college football. There was no SEC before the Ivy League. And it, you'd be remiss if you talk about the history of college football and its head coaches and not talk about the likes of Walter Camp and his impact in the history of the sport. Like I said, 68-2 and two over five seasons, four national championships. Now, you think of legendary coaches as they exist in sports, and it's you'd be remiss if you didn't mention Newt Rotney. And Newt Rotney was the head football coach at Notre Dame from 1918 to 1930, finished with a 105, 12, and 5 record, an 881 winning percentage, and really was the foundation of college football and the great uh, history of Notre Dame. There's no Notre Dame history without Newt Rockney. And this is a guy that did nothing but win, according to JohnPielli.com, the second most successful college football coach in the history of the sport. So finally, you have to talk about a person that I consider the legend, and that is Bear Bryant. Now, you may look back at Bear Bryant and say he may not have been the nicest guy and you could talk about some of the things that he ended up dealing with. Um, head football coach in Maryland in 1945, Kentucky in 46 to 53, Texas A&M 54 to 57, but of course is known for his time in Alabama from 1958 through 1982. One, two, three, four, five. Five-time national champion, 323 wins over the course of 38 seasons. And you just look at the epitome of what you think of the top college football head coach. And it starts with Bear Bryant. So if you missed the list, if you look up at johnpielli.com, it's there. As well as a list of the first Latin American managers for every Major League Baseball team in history. So uh, I said I'd get into it, and we're going to do it today. we got a couple minutes. We haven't done it in a while. In fact, the reason that we got away from doing pro football picks, I still bet. I bet off my app on the phone. And it got away from it because I realized that me doing football picks only matters to me. I win money. I lose money. But in the end, does the listener really care about what somebody's football picks are? It's almost like somebody talking about their own fantasy football team or their fantasy baseball team. Nobody cares. Those are things that, like, somebody brings up. You're like, dude, just shut up. Nobody cares. So we'll pop four really quick picks within uh, about a minute or so. Buffalo's heading to Houston. First game, 4 o'clock today. Buffalo plus two and a half 
So I'm taking the Bills in Tennessee. I'm sorry, in Houston. I'm jumping ahead because Tennessee is playing New England. And here's where I pick an upset. The Tennessee Titans, I think they could put a couple points on the board. And that's going to be the key to beating the New England Patriots because I don't think the Patriots are going to be able to blow you out from an offensive standpoint. Now, the one thing that I gave the Patriots credit for, and I think a lot of people did, was their ability to play defense. One of the best defenses that we've ever seen in the first half of the season. Not quite the same right now. And if they're going to have a chance to win, even though they're at home in Foxborough, and obviously the best team in the history of the National Football League, not just the last 20 years, but the last 20 years to go up against anybody, they're going to have to be able to stop the Tennessee Titans. And I can see the Titans winning a game close. I can even see them losing a game by a field goal. So that's why I like four and a half. Give me Tennessee plus four and a half at New England. Sunday games. Minnesota is traveling to New Orleans. New Orleans, I think, is a little pissed off because they didn't get one of the top two seeds. San Francisco ended up winning because of that. San Francisco's one, Green Bay's two. New Orleans got to play in Wild Card Weekend. I think they look back and they remember what happened. The Stephon Diggs catch at the end of the game. Last year, they were burned with a pass interference call. Is there a team in football that has more of a chip on their shoulder than the New Orleans Saints? Give me the Saints minus seven and a half at home against the Minnesota Vikings. Last game, Seattle is on the road at Philadelphia. I know people are starting to jump on the Philadelphia Eagles bandwagon. Big game for Carson Wentz. Eagles made it to won the Super Bowl a couple years ago with Nick Foles playing the playoffs last year with Nick Foles. And now this is Carson Wentz's first playoff game. Give me Seattle, minus one and a half at Philadelphia. The Ellie's Picks National Football League playoffs, wildcard weekend, 2020. A little bit of a recap of the show today. We spoke about Latin American managers in Major League Baseball history. Still, 11 teams have never hired one. Also, 11 teams in Major League Baseball history have never hired a black manager. Four teams in Major League Baseball history have never hired neither a black nor Latin American manager in the history of their franchise. The teams are Philadelphia Phillies, Minnesota Twins slash Washington Senators, Oakland slash Kansas City slash Philadelphia Athletics, New York Yankees slash Highlanders. Top college football coaches in the history of college football. That's up on JohnPielli.com. Uh, obviously, Pielli's picks. We did them this week for the first time in a while. Hope everybody has a good weekend. Hope you enjoyed the Passball Show brought to you by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. By Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania, as well as JohnPielli.com. We're going to close the show by catching up on some trivia and Mets trivia, which we got the first question right. Um, next one was actually a difficult one, and maybe the Mets trivia is a little more difficult than I thought it would be. Next, the question on January 2nd was, can you name each of the five seasons Tom Seaver led the National League in strikeouts? Now, I named five seasons. Out of those five seasons I named, I got a total of two of them right. So the correct answer was 1970, 71, 73, 75, and 76. 
So that's a big X. I was wrong. Question on January 2nd. No question on the 3rd. So we moved on to the 4th and 5th. And this one was one that I lucked out in just because I saw the credits when I watched this movie. So it happened to be something that I knew. If it wasn't for me scrolling through the credits one time watching this movie, I would not have known the answer to this question. Mets pitching coach, who obviously is no longer the Mets pitching coach, but last year, Dave Island, was a consultant and body double for what 1999 baseball movie? And the reason, like I said, I know this answer is because the credits were rolling towards the end of the movie and something made me see Dave Island's name in the credits. So the answer was for the love of the game, which of course is the Kevin Costner movie where he plays Billy Chappell and throws the perfect game against the Yankees, yada, 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 with the backdrop of his love story. Um, and a pretty good movie. That maybe not one of the best baseball movies ever, but I thought it was a good movie. So the baseball questions, we're going to continue to roll. And the first question we had was, name the player who did not have his number retired by at least two teams. And you got if you think deep into this, you'll understand that there's a reason for it. The, cho the cho choices were Rod Carew, Nolan Ryan, Dave Winfield, Frank Robinson. Here, by the process of elimination, Rod Carew, number retired by the Angels and the Twins. Nolan Ryan, number retired by the Astros and the Rangers. Frank Robinson, number retired by the Reds and the Orioles. So the only one you have to think about, Dave Winfield, and I remember Ichiro wearing number 31 when he played for the Yankees. So that would give me a little bit of a clue that Dave Winfield was probably the answer, and sure enough, it was. Question we were asked today, and it's, it's nice when these questions get thrown out there, and I'm like, yes, I know the answer to. But, you know, we want to play along at home. Who played in the most regular season winning games? And this man talks about it all the time. It's not Stan Musial. It's not Hank Aaron. It's not Carl Yastrzemski. Though all three of them played a very long time. It's Peter Edward Rose. So we're three for three on a baseball trivia, two for three on a Mets trivia. We'll be back with you probably Thursday next week. So we'll be able to catch up on a lot of questions that will be asked between now and then, according to these baseball calendars. I hope everybody has a good weekend. Like I said, you can tweet at me at John underscore PLE. Comment during YouTube or send me an email if you want, jrple at gmail.com. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.